0: Please put your hands together for Senator Ann Cools. I thank you very very much Attila for that rather kind but marvelously brief introduction. (laughs) So I thank you for that and uh, I would just like to say I'm very honored and pleased to join you here today but I'm especially pleased to be here because my dear friend, Erin Pizzi, is here. And Erin Pizzi and I have a rather deep attachment and, and common view, and, and shared view on some of these issues. And um, I quite often in speeches describe Erin Pizzi as my soul sister or my soul mate because we have discovered a long time ago. In addition to that, we have fought in a few wars. And, uh, and quite frankly, I'm very pleased to join you here today, Erin, and I'm really, really ecstatic to see you again. One of the things, one of the things that Erin Pizzi did was, and her influence was felt, right across North America was that she brought, the, she brought the fact that violence between intimate partners or violence within, among family members was an undesirable thing, and it should occupy the minds and the actions of policymakers. Uh, before, all, before all of this, you must remember, if you were to do something, like to review the old journals on marriage or the old journals on family, you would not find a single mention of the word domestic violence or even violence. So um, we have, back in the 60s, there was an expression, you've come a long way, baby. <laughs> you remember, there, it was an ad for a particular uh, style or kind of cigarette. So we have come a long way, baby, and, and, and I think we should admit that. Because when we look at the issues of violence within the family domain, we are looking, and I think his, his, his name is uh, Stefan or Stepan, Stefan, and I think he did a very brilliant job of showing how fundamental the understanding of this issue is to our, our humanity and to our very, and to our very existence. So what we are really dealing with at all times, in a manner of speak- speaking, is the root of many evils, if not all evils. I want to, 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 to share a few facts with you that as I was listening uh, to the previous speakers, I found myself thinking, I wish I had brought this piece of information, I wish I had brought this quotation, I wish I had done this, I wish I had done that. But uh, remember, I just, I'm going to drop something on you right now that uh, you may not even know. So, Criminal Code Section 233 on infanticide. I don't know if any of you have ever looked at it, but I spent a lot of time reading the law. And Section 233, which I shall read to you in total is a section whose single purpose is to diminish responsibility of mothers who have murdered their children, particularly young children, a year, a year old and younger. And I would like to read it to you. Most people think infanticide means the killing of a child. It means more than that. In legal terms, it is the killing of a child by a female. If a father or a man Kill their child like that, it would be first degree murder. I just, you should just, I, very few people even think about any of these things. So, what you're coming here again is that constant movement at all times, which is always diminishing responsibility um, on, the, on, on behalf of women. So, I'll just say this, read it to you. Section 233 A female person commits infanticide when by a willful act or omission she she causes the death of her newly born child. If at the time of the act or omission she's not fully recovered from the effects of giving birth to the child and by reason thereof or of the effect of lactation, Consequent on the birth of the child, her mind is then disturbed. Here's a statute which says very clearly, a female person. And if you know a little about statutory interpretation, it means that that cannot mean a male person because it specifically excludes mention of others. So um, I just had that with me, and I thought, gee, I should maybe... Put out such a reminder. Because I have been in circumstances when many will say it's not true. It is not possible, but it is true and it is possible. Do you want to say something? Go ahead. Does that, does that bit of, uh, law uh, no, know, but is the practice. Easy? The practice is a year, up to a a, a, a year old. Well that really wouldn't matter in this case anyway. But this is this is this is all about a homicide. This is about homicide. But it says lactation, so conceivably if still breastfeeding at five years old? Trust me, trust me. The 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 application they use is about a year. Okay, but I just wanted to put that out to you. I think one of the great travesties of the era has been the fact that the phenomenon of violence in the home, violence in the family, or domestic violence, was reframed as violence against women. I think that had a rude uh, interruption of the natural progress that the issues were taking and that treatment uh, was taking as well. And uh, I would go so far as to say that the issue has been falsely framed. Falsely framed as violence against women. And I am much happier with uh, IPV, intimate partner, uh, in, uh, intimate partner violence or conjugal violence or uh, couples or, or whatever. But I think it's a lot more clear and I think we understand a lot more. As I was listening um, to, to the previous presenters, speaking about the actual denial of, of female, or of, of aggression by females. And as he pointed out himself, as Dr, as Dr. Fieber himself pointed out, he looked at Chaucer again and was a little surprised at what he saw the, the wife of Bath saying. And I remember, I remember the wife of Bath very clearly in my ancient studies of Chaucer and she was not nice, so I remember that very clearly. But all kinds of other women spring to mind that, uh, that, uh, that are mentioned in literature, particularly creative literature. And I didn't think to bring it with me, but I could have and I should have perhaps, but I'm thinking of the great uh, uh, tragedy, Medea. And I don't have it with me, but Medea is very angry with her husband or the significant person in her life, Jason of Jason and the Golden Fleece uh, fame. And she sets out to hurt him in the best way that she knows how to, which is to kill their children. And somewhere in the body of of that play, uh, there's an exchange between her and her maid, as she says to the maid that she is going to hurt him in the way that she knows how to do it. And she knows it will hurt him. She will kill the children. And the maid is pleading with her, please do not do this terrible thing. Please do not. And she seals her maid to silence. And it's something like, you say no more. You say nothing of this. In the name of the race of womanhood, you say nothing. And I should look that up. I have it in speeches somewhere. And I should look that up. and. Maybe we should reexamine that, because for many years uh, the phenomenon of, of, of women kill, killing children uh, as an infanticide was described as the Medea complex in psychiatric circles. Now, I have no doubt that that may have disappeared into the, into the dustbin of history. I want to uh, share with you some of my experiences, and I do different things from what most of you do here. My business is fighting issues, raising issues, on the floor of the Senate, as you know, which is the upper house of, of the two houses. And I, because of my experience as a central figure in this country in the field of domestic violence and in the business of providing services to women back in the 70s, and because of the, the, the reputation that I acquired in the field, Standing up for uh, for injustice and so on, I became I, I attracted the attention of politics and so on, and um, and I actually ran with Mr. Trudeau in 1979 and 1980, but in 1980 I was appointed to the National Parole Board, so in that work I saw many inmates who were on the other side of the of the issues. And, and, uh, and I saw the, the tragedies and the terrible consequences that could occur when relations between a man and a woman go very, very, very wrong. And, and perhaps that is where I can begin today, on the grounds that uh, human beings, human beings are very complex creatures And suffer under a very distinct disability that, for the most part, they have no insights into their own wounded natures, or into their own behaviours. And human relationships between men and women are especially complex and difficult. So when the era has layered false concepts on top of a very difficult thing, which is intimacy, it is not really helpful. So when this, the whole set of ideological notions of the patriarchy have been layered on top of this, it has not been really helpful. And I have, I have quite often described that as a, as a disease in the mind, a mental disease in the mind of the body politic. Because I would submit to you that a relationship between a man and a woman will be difficult and challenging because relationships are that way. It takes work to make them, to, to make them survive. And uh, I have some proof of that because about three weeks ago somewhere, I was speaking at, at another place and a gentleman approached me to thank me for a speech that I had made, it had to be about 30 years ago almost, maybe 25, but not much less in which he said, after hearing me speak, he and his wife went home, and had a very serious talk about their relationship, and they sat up for many hours into the night, because they were discussing how they they didn't like what they were doing to each other, and that they had to change, and they made a commitment to change how they spoke to each other, how they expressed anger to each other, and how they would generally relate. And he told me that, uh, knowing that I was coming to speak, he had looked up the notes. He still had his notes (laughs) from the night, from the time he heard me speak. And one of the things he said that I had said was in the speech was, "A relationship between a man and a woman is an undiscovered science, and it's one that you have to discover yourself every time." So I just share this with you uh, to to just. To bring this out. So what I have to say really is that I offer my work as a senator, especially on the divorce law, which like criminal law, has been ravaged by ideological, mean-spirited, and misandrous practices. My perspective is that of balance, fairness, and equilibrium. Grounded in the notion that human beings and human relationships are extremely complex, and that intimate family relationships involve personal vulnerabilities, elusive dynamics, and multiple, multiple emotions. Managing human relations and human dynamics is challenging even for the well-equipped personality. For the not-so-well-equipped, managing human relations is daunting and sometimes nearly impossible. Life and human intimacy is a difficult road for many. Human emotions, such as love, anger, expectations, and disappointments, are driving forces. Human needs and human emotions are compelling. Human complexity is further complicated by the fact that human beings frequently have little or no understanding of what and why they feel, and little or no insight into the effects of their own behavior on those with whom they live. I wish to put on the record here that there's a very famous Jesuit priest called Father Thomas Green. He, he produced lots of books for people on retreats who were attempting to personally discern their, their insufficiencies and, and, and their positions and relationships. And in one of his books called Weeds Among the Wheat, he makes a reference to a very great French uh, writer on personal discernment and his name was Jacques Guillet, and the statement I want to put out to you for your consideration is the following, that we're all working in darkness. And Guillet says, there's the darkness in man himself who is incapable of seeing his own heart clearly, incapable of grasping completely the seriousness of his actions and the results deriving from them. On observing human behavior, the inescapable conclusions that human beings, both men and women, are afflicted by their own imperfections, frailties, and woundedness. This condition governs most human behavior. Interestingly, the more imperfect and wounded a person is, the less tolerant that person is of the imperfection and woundedness in others. Human capacity for misunderstanding is great. Men and women are equally capable of vice and virtue. Vice and virtue are human characteristics, not gendered ones. I have politically repudiated the too prevalent notion introduced into the public discourse by radical gender feminist ideology that women are morally superior to men, that men are morally inferior to women, and that somehow men are naturally morally defective. The false proposition of women's inherent virtue and men's inherent vice has dominated and deformed family and criminal law for the last few decades. Much public policy and domestic violence, particularly arrest, charging, and prosecuting policy, has been founded on this deformity, wreaking havoc in the lives of people most of whom are ill-prepared and ill-equipped to handle such havoc. Havoc. These policies have bequeathed incalculable pain and suffering, suffering, and unspeakable tragedy. I just wanted to put that out so that you have an understanding of my moral, spiritual, and legal approach to human problems. And, and I would encourage all of us here that when we're dealing with these issues, understanding that we're dealing with human issues. And at the end of the day, the best that we can do is to move from a position of fairness and balance and, and equilibrium, which I think, Erin, is one of the positions that you and I have, have espoused for many, many years. I would like to say that I'm not an academic, I read a lot, I've always been a reader, it's part of my life, and I do a lot of writing, but I want to share with you my experience of the public interest in these issues. And um, I've worked on these issues, and I have to tell you, I have... Experienced fantastic and overwhelming and unmanageable public support on, on these issues. And uh, remember, I'm at the end of my career now. I'm in mean, the last couple of years of my time in the Senate. But I just want to share with you that I have found that the public, the story that they hear about domestic violence is not the story that they see in their lives, and I would like to recount to you some events that happened in 1995. Some of you here may be a little young to remember that, but I had been invited to speak at an event in Ottawa to government employees on International Women's Day. And I was speaking not really on domestic violence, but in the process of speaking of domestic violence, now this is March 8th, 1995, so in the process of speaking to them, I inserted a few unplanned words. I think, Grant, you'll remember this event very well. However, those few words had the effect of challenging the orthodoxy of women's perfection as against men's imperfection. And in mentioning domestic violence, I just used a few words. I said, talking about, I said, you know, we should look at the other side of the equation. And then I said, these are the words, quote, behind every abusive husband is an abusive mother. Mm -hmm. Didn't think anything about it. Got challenged by a young ultra feminist as I walked away, and uh, you can't say that. You can't blame women. You can't do this. Well, I didn't blame anybody. <coughs> I just know my work. Anyway, I got back, and you'll find this very interesting. I got to my office, and my secretary Candace, whom Ernest met, was eagerly waiting for me to get there. She said, they're calling, everybody's calling, what did you say? So of course I went, hmm, what did I say? So the first thing we had to do is retrieve a copy of what I did say, so I took a look at it and I said, oh, that's perfectly fine, I can live with that. Unknown to me, I had touched a fantastic nerve all across this country. I did about half a dozen interviews and went home and said to my husband, you know, guess what? You know, I said something or the other and uh, she's six interviews in two, three hours. My husband has a very dry sense of humor. He said, oh, must have been a slow day for news. (laughs) Great sense of humor. Next morning, my phone was ringing from five o'clock and what I would not have been aware of is that I was the central story in ev- on every front page of every newspaper in this country, in every city. You can go back to the record and look them up. And talk shows and these radio programs draw their materials from, from, uh, from the newspaper articles. So then like five minutes later, another phone call. So I had three interviews lined up like, you know, uh, Six thirty, 7, 7.30. But in the meantime, I called my secretary. I said, I don't know what's happening, but let's get ready. Get into my office. You're gonna take every call, and I'm gonna, I will accept every interview, and just schedule them 15 minutes apart, beginning at nine o'clock. And I swear to God, there was a huge public out there who was trying to say I have seen this, I've been hit by my mother, I was, I was hit by my grandmother. It was like the whole, I don't know, it's like something had burst and the, and the rivers and the oceans uh, were raging. It turns out I had done uh, an enormous public service without intending to, I didn't set out to do it, but it did happen. And what happened was that there was a national debate going on on every radio station in this country, in every single newspaper in this country, all about Senator Kuhls' remarks. And this is what they were referred to, Senator Kuhls' remarks. And there was a lot of editorial uh, talk about it and television. Everybody was interviewing everybody else. And, but I did, though, I did interview solid, solidly for about three to four days. I was exhausted at the end of the four days. So what I'm trying to say to you is that in the process of all of this, I began to understand how close I was to the public nerve of the country and how distressed people were nationally at how the debates on violence were being conducted. and. Um, so I felt very liberated, and thereafter felt very free to speak very freely about my point of view. But you know, as these journalists are very good and some are very smart, and the reason I'm giving this to you today is because as a result of all of this, I had done two big speeches, large speeches, on the Senate on, on violence. And I actually recorded, so we have some record of these events, and I see Grant smiling, but we have some record, and that's how I met you uh, during, uh, during that time. But I also have them record, so I just want to record. These are just a couple that I did put on the record of, of, on the Senate floor. We say that all the, all the time, the proceedings or the record. And I'll give you an example. Uh, on the beginning, on, on March 8th, Toronto CFRB radio station, held a survey, Now you know, they, they talked for three days about Senator Cruz's remarks. So during this all-day talk show, they talked about, about what I had said. But they went farther. They put the question, so they're doing their little polls. Uh, CFRB radio station put the question to its listeners, quote, when you were growing up, which parent was more abusive? Your mother or your father? I got this from the radio station. Of 200 respondents, 62% said mothers. This is the sort of thing that Dr. Fieber was talking about. This is the public speaking now, you know. So of 200 respondents, 62% said mothers. 38% said fathers. This is staggering. In Ottawa, CFRA's radio show, The Lowell Green Show, Found that 70 to 80 percent of their callers were agreeing with me. On 9th March 1995, McLean Hunter Broadcast News placed my remarks before the viewers. You know, you read it, uh, and it says, um, "Do you agree?" Basically, asking them, "Do you agree?" Senator Kuhl said this. Do you agree? Of the 273 respondents, 50. 7% agreed and 43% disagreed, though not scientific. These were all the results of public dialogue as their phones were jammed with people calling up to talk about this thing as they wanted to talk about childhood experiences in their own homes. One fellow, I remember very vividly talking about his mother breaking wooden spoons on his head One uh, radio station, which I shall not name, they were trying to stay out. They were so afraid of the political correctness or the ideology that they wouldn't have me. They decided they were not gonna call me for an interview. They did call because what was happening was that people were hearing it everywhere and they were intruding into everything else. So they they were ignoring what was going on in the rest of the country, and talking about something else, and apparently callers were calling and saying, we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about this. And it was an amazing thing. Can you imagine a talk show host? People are calling and saying, no, 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 we we, we don't want to talk about, we want to talk about these issues. These are big issues, and so on. Anyway, so that went on for many days, and I got calls from journalists, and, I was talking to one beautiful woman from down east and she said to me, how is it that we have not seen or heard this before? So of course I said to her, well, you know, this is just how it is, but we're seeing it now. I heard from that same woman three times in the next three weeks, about a week later she called to say to me that she had read an article about a baby, a woman who had thrown a baby out an apartment window. And she was asking me the question, well, obviously this goes on. How come I have I never noticed this before? And I kept saying to her, it's the same problem. This is outside of our, of our consciousness. It's right under our noses. And I had, I had lots of calls at like that. People asking me, how come they have not noticed this before? And during all of this, this time, of course, this is this was all called Senator Cool's remarks. And for the next many months there was great dialogue and conversations in university classes, but it was always Senator Cool's remarks. It wasn't ISAC, you know, it wasn't that I the person am saying this. It was always being repeated and the fear of people of being pilloried by this unknown persons out there or being destroyed was, was uh, very impressive. I did my last interview when I had, I decided that was the end, I was tired, no more, no more. I had one particular very ultra femni- feminist ideologue in my office actually interviewing me, and, and I wanted to say, just please leave my office. But I bit my tongue because that's what she was looking for. But in any event, I came through that, and I think in the great process of all that, I realized I had performed a great public service. And I was approached by countless people. My husband, in those years, refused, wouldn't go to the grocery store with me because there was always somebody approaching me to talk to me about a problem related to either divorce or abuse or something like that. But I would like to share for the psychology and the law involved in it, one particular story. Um, about two months after three months, because this is March, we were into May, I was gardening, I'm a gardener. And I was down on my hands and knees on, my, on the front of my lawn, weeding, would you believe, weeding. So um, along this woman came, very attractive woman, very good looking woman. And she looked at me, she recognized, Senator Cools, could I have a chat with you for a moment? So here am I covered in mud up to here. Not a good looking sight. And I said, just a moment. And she proceeded to tell me that when she heard what I had said, and she'd heard it on the news around noon that day, that she was angry. She was angry at me. She couldn't believe, how could I do this? How could I betray women? So I was out betraying women, you know? How could I betray women? So of course I'm, I was standing there wondering, why is she telling me all this? Then she, she went to a very interesting place, a place I didn't think it was going to be, but she did go to that place. She said, Senator Cools, I got home from work that evening, about six o'clock, and here it comes. She says, I'm my little boy. My seven year old boy met me at the front door. This, met me at the front door, and he he did something. And she told me, Senator Cools, I looked up. I, was, she said, I, I knew I was angry. I looked up and flung my hand right next to his ear. So she's been doing this all along. Whether consciously, I can't really verify, but she's saying that she wasn't conscious of it. And she told me that she found her hand right to hit, and then she started to shake. She literally had a, a semi-breakdown of some kind. And then she said, Senator Kuhls, you were talking about me. You were talking about me. Senator Kuhls, I thank you. I will never raise my hand at my child again. So when people give you those kinds of responses, it means that, Something very deep and profound has happened in their lives as a result of of this incident. So I just wanted to to share that with you because um, my position is very well known across this country. And I have traveled the width and the breadth of this country and dealing with all kinds of terrible issues because the situation continues to develop. During the process, what, we, what began to go on in this country in a, very, in a very massive way is what we call false accusations of abuse within, uh, within civil proceedings. You must understand, accusations of this nature are of a criminal, of a criminal type, mens rea, and all these standards of proof. But these were being raised in the context of civil proceedings and divorce because it became a, a technique uh, a fast track to spousal support, child support, and everything else, and, and Vern, you'll remember a lot of this, and there were men who were being destroyed ruthlessly and mercilessly in this country by, by an accusation. I want to tell you, if you know anything about parents and parents who love their children, any such charge or, or accusation against a parent, especially a father, will bring him to his knees. You know, and I, I would see big, strong men crying like children. Um, I remember meeting with one in particular. He came with his mother, his, uh, his daughter, the one he was supposed to uh, uh, hurt, and, and his, new, his new girlfriend all pleading, please. And, and I was getting 120 handwritten letters a day. So I just wanted, that's where I got to know Grant and a few other people and and Vern Beck as well. And you also have to know this was a wide uh, movement as well because, a wide issue, because at that time you also had the flourishing of all of these unusual syndromes, which all were having the effect of diminishing women's responsibility. You had the, what was it, the Swengelly, you remember? help me with this man, we had the Swengelly uh, uh, influence, we had, um, oh there are others, PMS syndrome, battered women's syndrome, reco- oh that was a big one, recovered memory syndrome. Now the psychiatrist helped a lot to really put that one to rest, and, um, and one of the lead psychiatrists uh, was a very able fellow named Dr. Mursky, so because the, 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 the industry and the discipline of psychiatry was being challenged because they were, it was, they were reviewing, really revamping the whole notions of, de, of depression and repression and dissociation. But in any event, so this went on, but it, it, it got a few blows. It got a few blows. So I just wanted to say that, and even the term battered women's syndrome We don't know what that is. It's not a diagnosis. There's no therapy for it. The term comes from a book that was written by a particular person and the entire book doesn't have a single reference. Somebody just pulled this out of their head and it sounded good and, and people were using the term as if it was significant. But it was all a fantasy, a, a creation, a fabrication, an artificial construct. So I'm just, uh, I'm just putting that out to you. There's other stuff that I want to share with you so that you understand the era. And I had men all over the country, people, families, they were coming from women to. Uh, on behalf of their sons, on behalf of their fathers. I recorded on the floor of the Seine, I can send you those speeches if you'd be interested in, 52 instances of cases where men were wrongly and falsely accused within these contexts. And I have the judges saying that, the judges basically saying that this was falsified, this was a, a malicious thing to do, and so on, but you know, the orthodoxy has its friends in high places. So as a result, the uh, departments didn't do that very much about it. But by just by the mere fact of raising it on the floor of the house and recording them, it did it did uh, have a huge effect, and uh, the number of false accusations or cases that I was hearing about just kept getting less and less and less. But in those days, I just want to tell you, um, I'm just trying to show you this deranged thing that took hold of human beings, where every single man was suspicious, was suspected. So any man who was seen now holding his little girl, his little daughter, in a loving way, was being viewed as, is, an, is he an abuser? Endless, uh, endless, this sort of thing. I want to share with you a study that was bankrolled, that was funded by the government of Canada, in 1990. It cost many millions of dollars, and it was called the Canadian Panel on Violence Against Women. So, no, they're not. Nobody's interested in, you know, uh, violence, say, for example, between women and children. None of that. Just violence against women. Remember, as I said, the issue was falsely framed. So. This you'll find very interesting. You review, and at the time I did, if, uh, oh yes, its 1993 report was named Changing the Landscape, Ending Violence. Part one, listen to the language of the headings. Part one was called The Context. Chapter one was entitled The Feminist Lens. Chapter one also contained a section called Looking Through a Feminist Lens. Another section was called Patriarchy and Violence, while another was entitled Heterosexism. Have you ever heard that word? Heterosexism. Just make it up. Hetero, right, make it up. And this is the whole thing about a lot of this stuff. It was just pulled out of somebody's imagination. This report informed that the concept of patriarchy was essential to the panel's analysis of the nature of gender inequality and violence against women. You have to know, when I was reading all this, I had great difficulty keeping a straight face, you know? But it's a serious matter. So, anyways, they're saying, again, the concept of patriarchy is essential to the panel's analysis of the nature of gender inequality and violence against women. Then they explain patriarchy. Thus, I quote, Patriarchy is not just a central concept in feminist analysis. For many women, it is also a daily reality. The most violent and profound expression of patriarchal power sits at their dinner tables every evening and sleeps in their beds at night." This is not a private opinion. This is a report financed by the government of Canada. So the report described heterosexism. Quote, heterosexism is the assumption that a woman's life will be organized around and defined in relation to a man. The report also told us (coughs) that Canadian society is organized around compulsory heterosexuality. And that heterosexism is embedded in all state institutions that women are likely to call upon, the police, the justice system, and religious institutions. Colleagues, sorry, I'm not going to say it. Friends, these concepts had more to do with constructing an ideological framework and nothing to do with assisting families in crisis. Or individuals who have been afflicted by family by, by family violence, because somewhere in all of this the ideology takes over and becomes the end in itself in any event um, by that time I had been distancing myself from all that sort of thing. but I will say again, when it's a terrible thing when all human behavior is being adjudged and judged by an artificial, even fictitious construct, such as men's power and control over women. And I really believe that this has created so much injustice. In any event, I think I can stop there.